my name is Dan, and I get the joy of uh, being one of the being one of the leaders, part of the team here at Liberty Church. And this morning, I get to talk to us from the Bible, which I am going to enjoy, and I hope you will too. I've been thinking this week about uh, being king. And I wonder if you've ever wanted to be king, maybe just for a day or for a week, or maybe not a king, but a a queen or a princess. Because I kind of like the idea of people waiting on me, of, you know, if I want coffee, someone might bring me coffee, or, uh, you know, a bit of horse riding, I think that'd be okay, and and opening hospitals while everyone cheers, that'd be nice to do, I think. You know, there's no financial worries when you're king or queen. Everyone's very nice to you. People are always happy to see you, pretty much everyone. Uh, And you get lots of social media followers as well. I did do a little research. The king uh, of the Netherlands, the royal family here, has about three quarters of a million followers on Instagram. That's quite a lot of people, just because they're the royal family. It's nice. And trending on Netflix at the moment is a series called The Crown, um, which traces the story of, the, of Queen Elizabeth II, the Queen of uh, Great Britain. And in many respects, you know, it portrays her at the beginning as a very reluctant queen. You know, she was third in line to be queen. She wasn't ever meant to be queen, but her uncle abdicates, and then when she's fairly young, her father dies, and so she's kind of thrust uh, into this position. And uh, the, the, uh, this is the small spoiler uh, that she does become queen, age 27. And you see scenes where she wrestles with that, and uh, she wrestles with self-doubt, whether you know, she can do the job. She wrestles with some anger and resentment that has been put upon her. But eventually she kind of uh, begins to embrace it with a sense of duty and a sense of uh, responsibility. Um, but it, the series also kind of portrays that maybe her younger sister would have been more suited to the role. And so you, you, you see this tension, but she's been given it. And the only choice that she kind of gets is in how she responds. For the last two weeks, we've been tracing the lives of of two women, one uh, Elizabeth, one Mary, and similarly to Queen Elizabeth, actually Elizabeth is her namesake, uh, they are kind of brought into positions, they're given roles in this book of the Bible, which they didn't expect, that they didn't necessarily want, Um, but they get given it, and then we've been tracing their responses. And today we're going to kind of move to episode three, and uh, remember that this is is Jesus' origin story, so this is kind of lots of backstory stuff. Jesus hasn't been born yet. In episode one, we see an angel visits uh, old Zach, Zachariah, and that's when the angel tells him that Elizabeth is going to become pregnant, even in her old age, with John the Baptist. And then, at the end of episode one, the end of those verses, it says that Elizabeth goes into hiding for five months. A little bit of a cliffhanger. And last week, uh, we see another angel, same angel, Gabriel, comes to Mary and says to Mary, uh, you can perhaps hear the words echoing. She, he says to Mary, you're going to become pregnant and nothing is impossible for God. I mean, 
that must have been a, a confusing situation for Mary who was kind of 15 or 16 years old. And with those two cliffhangers, now the two storylines are coming together in episode three. What will happen next? What will happen when the two of them meet? So we're going to read some verses in the Bible which have been compiled uh, into the Gospel of Luke. Now Luke was a historian and a doctor and he goes uh, to great lengths to compile all the eyewitness accounts that he can find um, because he states his aim in his book is to give certainty to us that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one who came to rescue the world. Just removing the watch so that it doesn't distract me or you. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus is recognized as this savior king by someone for the very first time. I'll read the verses, listen out, and see if you can spot when it happens. So we're reading from Luke 1, verses 39 to 59. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We'll read a bit more, but did you spot it? Elizabeth refers to Mary's bump as her Lord. But we're going to read on and hear Mary's response to Elizabeth's excitement. And Mary said, but actually it's a song. It's a song of praise. It's known as the Magnificat. And literally that means to tell out or to magnify God. And Mary sings, which I won't do, because that would surely cause our live stream to go down. But Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my saviour for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And then there's a concluding note. Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned 
to her home. So the first thing I want to draw out is that even as an unborn baby, Jesus is the recognized king. It was in verse 44 when Elizabeth hears the cry and she has this deep spiritual experience and she has profound insight that she wouldn't normally have. It says the Holy Spirit falls on her and she kind of prophesies. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She recognizes Mary as the mother of her Lord. Now Elizabeth would have lived with a sense of, of expectancy that the Lord was going to come at some point, that her, her Messiah, her King was going to come. She didn't know when, but all of a sudden when this teenager, her cousin, enters, she knows that that is her Lord and her King. So Jesus was King even as an unborn baby. I think that's amazing. Mary, uh, Elizabeth is the first to kind of speak it out. But we'll see in, later on in Luke that actually the, the Jewish people of the day, they were expecting someone more like a political leader. Now at this point, Jesus isn't even born. She doesn't know what kind of person he's gonna be. And I wonder if sometimes we uh, put our own ideas on how Jesus should be before we've interrogated the Bible, before we've looked at what picture of Jesus uh, is in the Bible and how does that compare to the picture that we have of Jesus? Because Luke goes into great detail and we're gonna be looking at it uh, for the next few weeks, but we've been looking at it as well, that Luke wants to show Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, the saviour of the world, the king that you and I need. Many prophecies are fulfilled in his birth. It was prophesied back in Isaiah a couple of thousand years before Jesus is born that he would be born uh, from a virgin. And there are many, many kind of signposts going back hundreds and thousands of years pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament. There is a lot of historical evidence. The Bible wants to show us clearly that Jesus is the prophesied savior. And this is actually the key that Matt was preaching about last week, the key to understanding life. So I wanna encourage us, if you've not done it before, then we need to interrogate, to understand, to decide if we think that this evidence stacks up or not. You know, it's fairly easy to say, and I've heard it a few times, that uh, it's a popular point of view even, that all religious paths lead to God. All religious paths lead to God. Maybe you've even thought it or said it yourself. Now, this sounds uh, good, because superficially we think that all major religions, they wanna answer the same questions. They wanna answer the questions of why we're here and what's wrong with the world and how can we fix the world? And they all point to God as being the answer. And so we can say, well, all, therefore all religions must be the same. But the issue, there's a couple of issues with this point of view. Because even though it seems tolerant and accepting, Actually, when we say things like that, we are also making statements of faith. We're making statements of faith ourselves, unless, of course, we've got lots of evidence to back it up. 
It's a statement of faith. And if you picture it, if you picture a mountain with maybe Christianity going up one side and other religions going up on other sides, the only way that you could possibly see that all paths lead to the top where God is, is if you were above it. If you put yourself where God is, either next to him or perhaps in his place. And so actually, when we say these things, I think at best we're saying it in a good way, good-natured way. We want to accept everyone, but we haven't necessarily interrogated all the evidence to back up our statement of faith. Because the Bible says that this isn't the case. It says that the opposite of true. It actually says that there is only one way to God. We'll come back to that. Point number one was that Jesus is the recognized king even as an unborn baby. And the question before us today is can we recognize Jesus as king? Because this is my second point. Jesus comes for everyone. He comes for everyone. It's, it is quite stark and startling that actually the first person who responds to Jesus is another unborn baby. It's John the Baptist in the womb. It says that he leapt for joy, which is actually fulfillment of a prophecy that Zechariah was given in our first week, where it said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the, very, uh, from the womb. So John the Baptist reacts, he responds with joy at being in the presence of the unborn Jesus. I mean, I think it's remarkable that unborn babies can be filled with the Spirit. And uh, we have prayed for all of our babies before they were born that they would be filled with the Spirit. You know, it also shows us something uh, about the sanctity of life, that actually lives exist before birth. This King Jesus goes on to reveal himself to old Liz, to Elizabeth, who was once barren and now has John the Baptist. And the King reveals himself to the young uh, now outcast Mary, because Mary was unmarried. Um, she would have been uh, become kind of socially marginalized. And Mary kind of acknowledges this in her song, uh, where she sings about her lowly estate. She's recognizing that she's poor, that she's got nothing to offer the world. But Jesus wants to come to her. Jesus wants to use her for his plans. And this is the point that Jesus wants to come to everyone, that not just the rich, not just the political elite, the educated, the religious, the well-behaved, the do-gooders. God wants to come to meet with everyone. He wants to come. He's met with me and he wants to meet with you if he hasn't already. The Bible shows us that Jesus often comes to meet with people who don't expect it. Often they self-exclude. Like uh, you might have heard of Zacchaeus. He was a, a short guy who ran up a tree to see Jesus. He was a tax collector, which in first century uh, Palestine meant that he was effectively robbing the Jewish people and giving the money. He was keeping a chunk of it to himself and he was giving their money to the Roman authorities. Not a popular guy, but Jesus stops by and says to him, I want to come to your house. Jesus loves to do that. He loves to uh, come to people who don't expect it, don't think they're worthy of it. 
And in Jesus' day, actually, women weren't treated as having uh, equal worth. The Bible deliberately, though, it deliberately highlights the role of women. Uh, it shows their purpose and their place in God's redemption, redemption plan. You know, he's doing it through Elizabeth, through Mary. And this would have shocked the local leaders. We can read it like it's another character. It doesn't matter if it's male or female, but the original readers of Luke would have been shocked that, you know, that the testimony of women was recorded. And we've seen this throughout history at different part times. There are different kind of groups that are socially marginalized and God wants to come uh, and restore dignity and restore honor and give people purpose. This kind of points to God's way of doing it when society says, no, 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 this is the way it should be. Or maybe you or I say, this is the way it should be. Actually, the Bible often contradicts us because Jesus wants to come to everyone. And there's a kind of a, an implicit warning here. Maybe not a warning, but an implication that actually if we think we're doing okay, then we might miss Jesus coming to us. And there's also another exciting application that means that our church is full of people who look completely different from each other. They look, they're from different backgrounds and they speak different languages. And um, Our church is very different. Rescued this before it fell. So that was point number two. Jesus comes for us all. And number three is that he's the king of the upside down kingdom. Because actually you can't be a king without a kingdom. And sometimes we need to be reminded that Jesus has come to build a kingdom. But it's not like a political kingdom. It's not uh, a kind of a utopian society where he has uh, all political power and authority. But it is a transformative kingdom. It's an upside down kingdom because Whereas most kings have, they impose external rule on us. Actually, Jesus comes to transform us from the inside out. Jesus comes to change our hearts first and then through it, change society. And make uh, no mistake that we need Jesus to transform our hearts, that he came for our forgiveness, but it's not meant to stop there. It's meant to go on and transform society. And actually, this is what Mary's song is all about. We're going to look at a couple of verses. Mary's song here is actually the first Christmas carol. Unlike any Christmas carol we tend to sing today, you know, it doesn't talk about beautiful winter scenes. It doesn't talk about animals, uh, you know, making nice noises. It doesn't talk about silent births. It echoes the Old Testament scriptures. It talks about God's mercy and his sovereignty. Let's read verse 51 to 53. Mary starts off by singing about how blessed she is and then within a couple of verses she turns to God. And about God she sings, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates and the rich he sent away empty. Actually, this reads a little bit more like a political manifesto, like Mary's trying to usher in some sort of new social revolution. 
because that's what the Jewish people were hoping for. They were under the control and the power of the Romans and, and they wanted a political leader. But we've got to pause and see that in verse 51, you know, it talks about God changing the proud. He bring, makes them humble. That's a heart level change first before societal change happens later where the poor get filled. And we see it later on in Jesus' ministry that he literally feeds thousands of people. We see it in Mary that she is a, a social nobody. She should have been outcast and pushed to the margins, left to fend for herself, but she sings of how she's blessed for generations. We see it time and time again with Jesus' disciples. You know, there's not many first century fishermen who we know the names of. But Peter becomes Saint Peter. And his name now echoes and has echoed through uh, millennia after millennia. This is what Jesus, the King, comes to do. He sees everyone. He plucks people out of obscurity and he blesses them. No one is overlooked. He wants to lift up the poor to give them acceptance, give them hope for now and for eternity. But also we see that the rich get brought low. And we see this in a, an encounter that Jesus has later on in his ministry where a young, very wealthy man comes to him and uh, they have a discussion and the wealthy man uh, says to him, how can I inherit the, uh, how can I inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus says, well, you know, have you, how, how have you done at, uh, how have you been living? And he says, oh, I've been following all the commandments. You know, I've lived well. And uh, Jesus says, you know, kind of well done. And then this is in, in Mark 10, verse 21. Jesus responds to him with the, and says these words. He says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So the man had done everything right and Jesus asked him to give away his riches. Because actually Jesus was saying that he wanted the whole of this man's heart. And we read on in the story that the man was dismayed in his heart because he had great wealth, which means he didn't really want to give it away. And that was a hard thing for him to do. And the disciples are standing there amazed. And uh, it goes on to say, you might be familiar with this saying that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So massive camel, tiny eye of the needle, it's impossible. And it says the disciples were exceedingly astonished and they said to Jesus, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked to them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God for all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God that it's possible for a rich man to give away his things. It's possible for him to recognize that Jesus is worth following. There's a bit of a warning here for us. You know, what are we holding on to? Are there things, areas of our lives that actually we want Jesus, that we're trying to be good and live moral lives and we're inviting him into certain areas but there are other areas we don't want to give up to him. 
Maybe that's your one thing Jesus is asking you to give up. But these words should bring hope as well because there's an echo of the words that Gabriel spoke to Mary. Nothing is impossible with God because actually for man's heart to change, it's impossible for us to do on our own. We need God's help and Mary needed reassurance that God could uh, give her the baby Jesus too. Jesus wants to be our everything. He came for everyone. Jesus comes to reorder our priorities. In his upside down kingdom, he wants us to recognize that our priorities, uh, you know, what we think is the most important is not always the most important. He wants to show us what really is the most important, that it's not wealth, it's not family, it's not individual autonomy or self-sufficiency. But Jesus' words are clear that actually there's only one path to God. And he speaks them out in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only path to God must lead through Jesus. Only through receiving his forgiveness, only through acknowledging that we need him as saviour, can we begin to approach God? And talking about Jesus' upside-down kingdom may be a little bit confusing because it takes a moment for us to stop and realize that actually we all want to be kings over our own life or queen. We all want to be lords over our own domain and it might come out in uh, you know, our ideas and our goals. It might come out in the areas of life we think that we should have domain over. You know, Maybe some of us want the fame or the profile that a king has or maybe the wealth that a king has or maybe the authority, the power or maybe just the comfortable life that a king has, but we each have desires in our heart that make us want to be king of our own lives. We all love kingly autonomy, but the truth is, is that King Jesus is the only one who has full sovereignty. We like to convince ourselves that we do, but Jesus is the only one who does. And Mary recognizes this. Mary recognizes in the first line of her song that she needs a savior, that she's not perfect. She needs someone to save her and then she calls herself a servant. She recognizes Jesus as king. Whatever life Mary was trying to build for herself, she says, I'll I'll lay it all down and I'll serve Jesus. And this is Mary's heroic response. This is the choices she makes to the circumstances she didn't put herself into, but she found herself there. And she chooses to submit her whole self, her will to be servant and her body to give birth to Jesus, to God's service. So today, are you ready to kind of take off your own crown and lay it to one side and recognize Jesus as king. And we do this once, but we also do it daily. We do it once um, when we kind of step over the line of faith where we say, okay, Jesus, I recognize that you are my Lord and Savior and I need you. And so we do it once. 
And at that moment, we can experience deep heart change and transformation starts. We've changed from our kingdom to being into his kingdom. It's like we've been given a, a passport in this new kingdom. Transformation begins, but it's not complete. Because day by day, there are temptations that come where we want to pick up that crown again. And so we lay down our crown once and we lay it down daily. This is the king of the upside down kingdom. And he invites us to enter in. And this is the fourth point. that This is the king who brings us joy. He didn't come to be a tyrant ruler or to impose lots of uh, rules upon us and a restrictive way to live. But he came that we might have ultimate freedom. And this is the adjective that uh, Elizabeth uses, that when John uh, jumps in her womb, he leaps for joy. He doesn't kind of chill there in peace. Or uh, The other picture we get of a, a womb is with um, Esau and Jacob where they're fighting. And that's not what John's doing. He's leaping for joy. And Elizabeth recognizes this. This is deeply mysterious. You know, this is actually a picture of, uh, for, uh, of what John and uh, what Jesus were going to come and do. We see in verse 47 that Mary says, my spirit rejoices. And Elizabeth as well. Uh, she is full, bubbling over with excitement and joy. So throughout this, there is a sense of joy at Jesus' presence. And this is what Jesus wants to continue to do with me and with you. When we get near to him, it should fill us with joy. There's an amazing verse uh, in one of the other gospel accounts of John 15, where it says, these things I've spoken to you, this is the words of Jesus, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants to fill us with joy. So Jesus comes, he comes to bring us joy. Joy for ourselves, joy for others, joy for now, joy for the whole of eternity. And this joy is much deeper than happiness. Happiness is just an emotion, but joy is a change in the state of our heart that no matter what the circumstances are, we can still have joy in Jesus. And we see as well that when Elizabeth and Mary meet, there's like a, a magnification of their joy together. And that's actually what should happen when we gather as well. Now, we know this, uh, that when we hang out in groups together, actually we learn different things about one another. We see ourselves in different situations and we get to know ourselves better and it's the same with God. Today is my wedding anniversary. I have been married to Sophie for 17 years. The Lord has developed deep patience in her for which I'm truly grateful but I thought it apt to share a little bit of advice I was given for our marriage, which is when you have a disagreement, you've got two opposing points of view. See it as an opportunity to learn something more about God. See your disagreement as an opportunity to learn something more about God because the truth is, is that actually we're both made in God's image and usually our different points of view display different values of who God is. So rather than opposing each other, 
the encouragement is that I come beside her and she comes beside me and we begin to value each other's opinions and therefore see a bigger picture of God. And this is uh, what should happen when we gather, that we can expect to see more of who God is because we all get to see different aspects of who he is. And then we can share them and we can reflect them upon one another. And we can expect our joy to increase as well as part of that. Let's keep getting to know God more in community. Our faith was never meant to be a solo act. The idea that our faith should be private reduces it to something that the Bible doesn't affirm. God gives Elizabeth and Mary unmerited favor. He turns their worlds upside down and he fills them with joy. And I'm coming to my conclusion. You know, these verses, um, they call us to faith. If you're watching and you'd say, I'm a Christ follower, there's a call to keep laying down every area of your life before God, to recognize him as king, to take off your crown of where you might have picked it up again. There's an encouragement to keep meeting with others as well. To expect to experience more of who he is and more joy. For those of us who are watching and we'd say, actually we're still exploring the claims that Christ makes. I want to ask you, will you believe today? These verses in the Bible have, uh, have invited us not to self-exclude, but they gently kind of invite us to lay down the things that, the, the reasons that we might give for self-exclusion. Maybe we think we're not good enough. Maybe we think we could never be that religious. Maybe we just think we don't need it. There's an invitation to step closer to Jesus. These Bible verses call us to examine the intellectual and the historical evidence to believe that God came to fulfill these promises in Jesus, that he came to save us, that he came to forgive us. And finally, the passages, the passage here invites us to hand over control of our destiny, of our future, to take off our crown and say, we need a savior and we will serve him to recognize that King Jesus' kingdom is an infinite kingdom. Ours was a finite one. His is a kingdom of joy. Ours is often a kingdom of trying to do the right thing or be the right thing. It's a kingdom of striving. There's an invitation to Jesus' kingdom to enjoy freedom and liberty and joy today. King Jesus comes to each one of us. He wants us to recognize him. Will you believe today? I'm going to pray for us. Yeah, King Jesus, I recognize you as my king. I can testify of how you came to me, of how I've interrogated the evidence of the Bible and found it to be true and seen my life turned upside down. And I am so grateful for the joy and the freedom that that has brought me. And I pray, Father God, uh, for those watching today uh, who haven't experienced that, that, that they might that they might today cross over the line of faith and say, yes, I recognize Jesus as my king today. And I pray you might fill them with all joy. 
I pray that we might see, uh, we might be able to echo the words of Mary's song today, that you're our saviour, that we're your servant, and that we might be able to sing of us being blessed by you for generations. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.